This episode is dedicated to Joshua, Corey McChrystal, Michael Gonzalez, and Lars Jelsang for becoming our newest Salesforce supporters and helping to make this project possible. This is Sam. This is Victor. Hello. And this is Fight hey. Study. On this fight study, we have Victor Rodriguez from Bloody Elbow to talk shop and preview UFC 266. Welcome to the show, Victor. I'm happy to be here, man. I was uh, I was really uh, looking forward to this for quite some time. And I mean, I know I'm sorry I had to ask you for a rain check last time around, but I'm really, really happy we're able to make this happen. So uh, yeah, just, just <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm hyped, man. I'm happy to do it. So let's start with this. How long have you been with Bloody Elbow? Oh boy. Okay. Uh, well, I started lurking. I want to say maybe 2012 or something like that, or maybe 2011, I think. And shortly, I want to say about a year or so, I actually became a, a member and uh, just lived essentially in the comments. I mean, back then, Twitter was not as um, Twitter use was not as widespread. MMA Twitter as it is now is not at all what it was uh, it, it was it was a far more um forum and website comment section focused thing so having that it was just there you know it's just like we had this wider sense of community which has whittled down to a degree but that's understandable and um somewhere in 2014 uh i offered to actually no prior to that i'm sorry about a year or so prior uh, 2013 or so i started um there were, there were a couple of folks who had left moderating positions and they needed new ones. And some folks, you know, nominated me. I'm like, eh, do I really want to do it? I'm like, come on, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing anything else. I'm there while I'm at the office anyway. Why the hell not? Right. So, uh, I started as a moderator and, uh, offered at one point to do previews for, um, the tertiary organization. So we had what we, where we have still the uh, Viva sections, which are done by Zane Simon, where they do previews and analysis of the upcoming events. And then they had one for Bellator. Well, then I'm like, you know, World Series of Fighting is kind of coming up. Why don't we do something for that in like Invicta? And that's sort of what we ended up doing. And then I ended up doing that for Bellator as well. And then suddenly Ryzen is a thing. KSW is a thing. So I started doing those. And uh, eventually I got hired as a writer and started doing, um, you know, pretty much what I do now, which is a little bit of everything, I guess. Um, but it also means that I had a lot of behind the scenes stuff that I was doing at that time, aside from moderating. So, I mean, I did a little bit of copy editing, um, you know, anytime there was any points of reference or there were questions in the uh, group chat, like, wait a minute, when did this happen? Or how did that go about? It's like, oh, I think this would be useful. So I was, I was always kind of like trying to be something of a point, man, filling gaps here and there. And um, it's never helped me in any way in thinking that I'm not a fraud, but, but it's one of those things are like, no, okay, look, you, you, you know, you have, this is a, an unusual story because most people like, yeah, I had a blog and I started writing here and then I submitted my writing to, uh, to, to the editor and see what they like and had a trial period. For me, it wasn't so much like that. For me, it was like, no, I literally came from the comment section and just started 
pulling some weight here and there and I made things happen. And uh, suddenly I'm on this incredibly wild ride where I've done everything from previews to post-fight stuff to uh, business analysis to a degree and actual honest-to-God journalism, which I don't know how the hell that happened, but uh, it's uh, this this has been an insane ride. And I just I love it so much because to be someone who's been every single day on his favorite website, just hanging around with his buddies, you know, is these parasocial relationships to actually being part of the crew. And, uh, now in some weird way, sort of branching out into other things. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how many people can actually say that that's happened. And so it's, uh, yeah, but it's, it's a very odd timeline and I know it's, it's not accurate. I know it's perhaps not the most uh, helpful way of laying it out, but I guess it's the only way my disparate mind can kind of like, um, assemble some sort of a string as to how that whole thing went and and here i am in 2021 um doing podcasts uh part of the official crew on that front as well that's a ton of fun um yeah it, it i've i've been a guy who's sort of been dipping a spoon into little bits of everything that we do and we do a whole hell of a lot which not too many other websites offer so how would you say bloody elbow has differentiated itself from other mma media outlets and endured when other MMA outlets have come and gone? You know, Jordan Breen had a great piece um, a while back where he talked about how, like, uh, you know, Bloody Elbow is one of the few bastions of, like, that kind of outlaw type of coverage, I guess. Um, we're famously not credentialed at UFC events, which I don't exactly mention as some sort of point of pride or badge of honor. Uh, but more more than anything else, it's it's... Just to show what a damning indictment it is of the environment and atmosphere in that we operate, which we operate, right? Because what we do differently is kind of, um, I mean, we 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 don't really shy away from a lot of the uglier truths of the sport, and I think that attracts a certain kind of person. I think that attracts a uh, certain different sort of readership. And I'm not saying that we're better or worse than anybody else because of that. But I do think that there is something, there's a different kind of thinking that goes in the process of a certain segment of the fan base that they'll be like, look, you can go to any website, any website whatsoever and find, you know, your little box scores and like, oh, this dude outpointed that guy and he won. Ho-hum. Who gives a fuck? Like that's, anybody can do that. Anyone can find that. I can go to, you know, and just, and this isn't picking on them or anything, but like I can go to MMA Junkie, for example, whom, by the way, they've done some very fine work. So I'm not saying this as a negative, but I can go over there and check in the weigh in results and then go to MMA Fighting and also see those same weigh in results. Why? Largely because they'll either have someone watching the weigh ins and taking notes, or because also, as these organizations do, they are very keen on making sure that media members are able to get things out there. It is in their best interest to keep you abreast of certain things. I get emails with uh, weigh-in results for certain events, even events that I don't even fucking cover. I'm like, why are you sending me this? But what I'm saying is it's easy enough to get that information and it's just results-based. It's stat tracking. It's not it's not exactly something as uh, complex as looking at a domestic violence case involving a fighter. Did this happen? Did this not happen? What did the police report say? Uh, what information is available to us regarding this particular subject? And being able to even just take a basic news story and editorialize it in a particular manner that is, in fact, more uh, objective than other places in some cases, or perhaps more of an unflinching view. Listen, this shit happened. 
it's not pretty and we got to live with it. And this is someone that you've been cheering for, you know, not so much like, I hope you're happy, but like, you need to realize that these are very, these, these, these human beings are, that are in the ring or in the cage are very much exactly that they're human, just like the rest of us. And they're going to fuck up. And some of them are not very nice people. They're going to do very unnice things. And, um, uh, it, 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 it bothers me to a degree when we get the kind of criticism that's very, you know, we get this, this sort of, um, boilerplate problem, like, Oh, who cares about that stuff, dude? You know, the usual, uh, uh, sort of like, well, they're, they're, they're cage fighters. What do you expect? Like, I'm sorry. I don't expect someone just because of the fact that they're fighting for money to not have the basic and common decency to, Oh, I don't know. Fucking go on a drunk driving thing and then sort of brush it off like it's no big deal or be accused of rape and then make themselves like some sort of victim when there's overwhelming evidence against them, things like that. Um, look, it, it's, we have something of a, uh, we have more than a few marks against us from people. And there, we certainly, a lot of folks that have an agenda and any time that we have something negative happen, they are always ready to jump out with the knives. They're always happy to dance on our graves. But I mean, we keep chugging along and it ends up being a thing where you look at those people that are always gunning for us and you realize what kind of scumbags they are. And you go, oh, okay, I see what's going on here. Uh, so if you're more of a discerning person, you're, you're going to at least look at that aspect of it. And that, you know, that, it doesn't necessarily mean, again, I'm not trying to be snobbish about it. I'm not saying like, this is the site for the sophisticated. I'm like, no, nah, not really. But there's something about this community that we've created where people are far more comfortable coming to us and talking about the shit here with us, where I'll go into a comment section for something, whether I wrote it or not. And I see these naturally evolving conversations take place and branch out into different directions. And I think, man, it's, this is, this is great because, okay, here's another example. So you have every website will post something like, um, you know, here's a picture of, uh, Conor McGregor riding a motorcycle. Yeah, sure. We're going to probably post that too, even if it's not super newsworthy. But sometimes, you know, not only do we have the things, which I fully admit, we do have the posts that we put up because we got to keep the lights on. But there are folks that don't go anywhere else. And even if they do go to other websites, they'd rather discuss it in our comment section. Why? Because they know that we're not going to let people go out there and, you know, call each other all sorts of like racial epithets and, you know, engage in threats of violence or, or physical or otherwise and i think we all know what that means as you see in some of the more disordered places on the internet so um i i think that's got something to do with it i know some folks aren't very happy with our moderation they feel we're too heavy-handed but when you look at how, how things are handled elsewhere and how or rather how they're not handled buddy listen uh, I, you know, <laughs> i'm i'm glad that i was part of, i'm proud to say that i was part of this community and and that we have not only a lot more um a lot more nuance with certain things, but a lot more respect, not just for the people that we cover, but for our readership as well. And did that kind of bloody elbow vibe start from Nate Wilcox or were there some other people early on that were really helping to shape this community? It's it's a combination of that. You know, Nate is um <laughs> Nate is Nate is as someone told me pretty much early on, there was something going on. It was uh I, and I don't quite remember what the situation was, but uh I think it was Zane Simon who had mentioned like, look, man, Nate is Nate is thankfully pretty hands off on a lot of these things in the sense that he's really good at allowing us to be creative and to be bold and to take chances with the things that we write or the things that we propose and to you know generally be a little more out there with how we um 
experiment on uncovering things or discussing things. Obviously, that comes with regulations, or more than that, I'd say um, loosely defined parameters, but they all come down to a degree of common decency above all else. And also the fact that we have, um, you know, we have ethics that we need to abide by. Uh, which is, which is depressing because when I finally got around, like I wrote that piece last year, or actually it was late last year, earlier this year about one championship. I got more stuff that I've been, I've been saying this for months and saying like, dude, I'm not done. I got more stuff, but it's really difficult to keep writing about a subject when you have people that you're talking to about a particular situation that are scattered literally on every continent except Antarctica. Uh, if I if if there is a ref uh, that has uh, whispered any sort of rumor to a penguin, I might have to speak to them, so that'll complete my world tour. But um, what whether the reason I'm bringing that up is, you know, there was there's a lot of constraints to the stuff that we do. The, the process for doing the more involved and detailed and deeper digs, uh, wrangling with legal, going back and forth. I mean, it's it's a uh, it's a big deal, but the things that we have to be mindful of before it even goes to legal for review and before management above us has to do that. Like we're very fortunate that we have the we're being under the Fox umbrella. We have that as some sort of um, as as some sort of a, a preventative, I guess, from from getting into any sort of trouble, or at least to uh, make sure that we're keeping our work in line with what is correct in the way that the things really ought to be. But um, that notwithstanding, you know, it's look, it's it's what's been molded by the editors. It's what's been the the standards that have been set by some of the writers before us and the guidance that Nate does give, because when he steps in, you know, whether he's got to and he's had to pull me aside, grab me by the ear, be like, you listen to me, you smarmy fuck. You got to stay. You know, like he's, he's had to you know, he's, he's never been he's never been like insulting or anything like that. I, I love Nate to death. But, um, you know, look, he never had to give me a chance to do any of these things, but he rolled the dice on me and I'm always going to be grateful to him and Zane Simon for, uh, you know, being one of the first guy to really put up with me and, and Anton for, you know, holding my hand through a lot of the processes and some of the stuff that I've had to do in the past. And, um, I, I again, it's, it's this, um, the collaborative effort from all of us together and sort of people offering bits of advice, you know, Tim Bissell, who's another one of our editors now, he's just a marvelous mind, you know, he's, he's just, like he's just like a super quiet dude, but then when he'll he'll drop some knowledge, like fuck, man, you're not such a great suggestion, and and I just love working with this crew for precisely because of that. Because we'll we'll it's not some it's not just a matter of having each other's backs; it's keeping each other in check before you even take that first step, so you have a better idea of what would work best for the group and for the subjects and, and material that we're going to be able to to uh, to to work on and put out. Now, before we get into UFC two sixty six. Let's talk about some other recent combat sports happenings, such as Triller and the continuation of celebrity boxing plus pop concert. Give us your thoughts on Triller. Okay, Triller, to me at least, kind of popped up out of nowhere. I, I, I saw that TikTok was you know, a thing and I didn't really pay attention to it until it blew up and was just like inevitable. Same thing with Snapchat. Triller, I had no idea what the hell it was. I thought I'd often confuse it with Shutter. I don't know if you're, you're familiar. I don't know if you and your audience are. I mean, I'm sure someone in the audience is going to be familiar. But if you're not familiar with Shutter, uh, it's that streaming service for horror movies. Mm. 
I thought that was that. I thought it was like part of the same thing or under the same umbrella. I had no fucking idea. I'm like, what is this chiller business? And they start putting on fights. I'm like, okay, so they got a couple of uh, circus show things. I'm always down for free shows, sure. But then I see that it's under boxing rules. I'm like, yeah, okay, maybe not my bag, right? I'm not big into the celebrity boxing or, you know, has been boxing, whatever the fuck. Um, then they start inviting artists. Then they've got Justin Bieber and they got all these like, like main big heavy hitters. And I started doing some digging and I realized who the founder of the company is. And this dude's a billionaire and all that shit. I'm like, oh, oh, these guys got money, money. Okay. This is a different thing altogether. Right. And so now they start having all these fights with, you know, insane mismatches from the outset. You kind of go, okay, they're blowing a lot of money on this. Maybe it's got some legs though, because we've all been, um, at some point, like some people looked at Bellator as some sort of oddity. And despite the, uh, despite the long winding road that they've had, they've made something pretty uh, amazing in the MMA sphere. But a lot of people weren't too confident that it would thrive, especially when you look at the shaky ground that it started on under the Repi regime. Um, Strike Force was another one where people kind of looked as uh, you know one of another one. This is this might be a fly by night operation, despite the people working with it. Triller was a little bit of a harder thing to read on because now you're looking at a social media thing that's trying to capture MMA money. They may be boxing matches, but make no mistake, this these guys are going for the MMA fucking wallet, just like Bare Knuckle FC is doing. Because again, they're not doing MMA, but they know that MMA fighters are dedicated. They know that MMA, MMA fans rather are dedicated and will shell out for some insane things. Like, look, I'm not, my MMA fandom really like in, in a more dedicated sense started from pride so i love that circus shit to a degree right like yeah sure okay i i don't know that how i feel ethically about evander holyfield almost 60 going in there against vitor belfort but i know that there's other weird mismatches that i will certainly watch like when um fight circus out of thailand when they put on those weird events yeah i'll watch three tiny dudes take on a big fat guy why not <laughs> it's, it's a much more controlled thing um, still a mismatch, but it, it, you know that there's not going to be as much brain damage absorbed by somebody who uh, is just doing this for the money and, and all that. So what what I find with Triller most interesting is that it's not just the freak show, because I can do a freak show. It is the morally and ethically dubious elements of having people that are super long in the tooth, have no business being in there and preying on the desperation for cash. Because you got to remember something. We went from bad to worse in this. It was Oscar De La Hoya was supposed to be in there. And he's doing this for paychecks that, I mean, he's a promoter. This dude was a millionaire, still is a millionaire. And, I mean, is this the competitive thing? Is it the money necessarily? I mean, I don't think he's got any fear of going broke. I hope not. But why is this guy thinking, yeah, I should get back in there and I'm going to contend and I'm going to do all this shit? I mean, not, And I don't mean in the sense of like gunning for a world title or anything like that. I'm saying... In sense of like, um, he's going to go in there against a younger guy and he's going to just do it based on his own self-confidence and his skills and his ability, despite his super long time away from, from being in a ring. Um, I, you know, Triller is seeing that and they, they, we ended up losing him to uh, the dreaded Corona, but now we ended up with an even older and more washed up guy who hadn't fought in 10 years. You want to know what he looked like 10 years ago when he had that last fight? Not fucking great. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, like you, 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 you look at that and you think, 
what the fuck is going on here? What is the end game? Anderson Silva versus Tito Ortiz was not as vulgar a different thing because the age difference between the two wasn't that big. They had both recently competed. I mean, relatively recent for Tito because he had the uh, he had his, his final match in Bellator. He quote unquote retired, ended up in Combate America. So he had a super quick win there. So it's like here's a guy who's like always in the gym. He's always training. He's always wrestling. He's always sparring. So he was never really that far away from the game, despite his time away and from from actual from actually having a match or a fight. Anderson Silva, same thing. You know, he went out real bad in the UFC, flamed out horribly. But now he's going in there. He beats up Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. And, I, yeah, I mean, okay, sure. You know what? Maybe the old dude still got it. Maybe there's uh, less for him to worry about because he's not worried about uh, defending takedowns or leg kicks or anything like that. Maybe this boxing thing isn't as bad. And, yeah, Tito got face planted. It was pretty horrible to see. But Tito never really took as much damage as in, as in his career as Evander Holyfield did. You know what I'm saying? So like it it's it's that is I'll give them that one. That one is not as bad. But where do we go from here? What's next? And that's where I start to feel like there's 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 some serious rearranging that they need to do. And they need to do it like three weeks ago because their PR team just quit. What else is going on? Are they not getting paid? What like yeah, and they it was an email. Like it was like an all caps email talking about like, well, ask somebody else, bitch. We we ghost. Like, oh, <laughs> this is what we're this is what we're aiming at, huh? Like listen, all of this is not looking great, primarily due to the fact that what they seem to be ge- leaning towards was more on the combat side. I'm okay with them doing the sort of thing where like I, I don't you remember affliction, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so Affliction, one of the knocks against them was, you know, oh, they pay their fighters too much money, which I, it always, it, it burns me the fuck up so much. Like, I've literally clenched my fist and trembled in anger fucking arguing with people. Dude, if you're fighting, if, if you, if you tell me that paying Joe Lozon, uh, or Bobby Green $60,000, is too much money. If you, if you're telling me paying Fedor a, a cool $1 million is too much money, and you're not taking into account that they're paying their executives or th- their executives are taking private jet flights all over the place and that they're paying Megadeth a million dollars to perform at a, at a at what, what was it? Just one song, I think it was, or two songs. I don't really fucking remember. But the point is that like, you have an organization similar to Triller spending a ton of money and they're putting a musical act. Here's the difference. Triller at least had contemporary artists people that were super popular, not just in one genre, and they're not just spending one million. Sure, I'd imagine that their budget for the uh, additional entertainment was far higher, but you're getting a much more complete experience. And maybe you'll have something like the Ronda Rousey effect, where people aren't just watching because they're fans of MMA, but they're watching because she just is one of those people who transcends. Justin Bieber, for better or for worse, transcends. People are going to be interested. People are going to want to see like, oh, 3-6 Mafia is also performing. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, uh, Natasha Bedingfield is also performing. What, what is this weird thing? You know what? I'm not going to miss this $40, $50. Let me throw it at this and see what happens. If, if Triller had maintained more of a balance with that, I don't know what they could have accomplished. But also, you do have a finite amount of fights that are the kind of free show that doesn't feel as gross to watch. And right now they've gotten into this perfect shitstorm of all these bad things happening to them from Oscar getting Rona to, you know, to not having these musical acts to fall back on to an old man going out there and looking decidedly very old against a guy who was also looking very old until he uh, had to stop uh, 
uh, fighting for the UFC and suddenly doesn't look so old anymore. So there's a couple of major red flags there, especially when you're fighting in Florida. Can you give us a breakdown about what one championship is and what you were writing about? Okay, so one championship is a major, major uh, mixed martial arts organization out of Southeast Asia. Now, originally they began as a the, the main concept and the purpose of the name one championship was that they would have fighters from different organizations throughout Asia and have them compete to have like one solidified thing, right? And it was pretty cool. They had guys from, you know, Korea, Japan, the Philippines, guys from mainland China, uh, drawing out from India, drawing out from Indonesia. And it was exciting because like prior to that, I don't think too many people had been exposed to a lot of like the Filipino or Indonesian fighters. Right. I don't think too many people were paying as much attention to, uh, for example, Korea or mainland China as they were, you know, as, as they perhaps ought to have. And even though the Chinese fighters development and infrastructure was not what it is now, it was interesting to see like, OK, where where is what is the landscape looking like for these prospects coming out of there? Like, are they legit? Uh, how far can they go? What's it going to mean to see, um, you know. The, the kickboxing uh, champion out of uh, Hong Kong taking on Shinya Yoki, for example, who's a master grappler. So uh, it started off pretty strong, man. They they just fired off on all cylinders. They started setting up events, and it was pretty cool. They had some guys that weren't super uh, well known, but uh, or outside of Asia rather. But they were they were doing some setting up some really fun events and having some super competitive fights, and it sort of elevated the talent to a degree problem is that they've been in operation for almost 10 years now and there's so many questions because of the secrecy and the insular nature of the organization um a lot of people point to different things a lot of people speculate about a lot of um you know perhaps less savory criminal elements and i just want to just set this straight up you know i i don't believe that there's anything like that personally it's just my opinion i don't think there's anything underhanded that's like breaking any law so far as i can tell uh, it just seems to me that this is an organization where it's being run by some individuals that are way out of their depth. Uh, it appears to me that they're making decisions that are um, detrimental to the talent. There is questions regarding the uh, ethical treatment of fighters, for example, fighter pay, fighter safety, uh, limiting the speech of fighters when they complain being punitive or retaliatory when they do make certain comments in public, uh, the uh, nature of how they market their events, you know, having a bunch of um, having their commentary say stuff like, oh, we've sold out this arena. And then you go on Instagram. It's like, no, they just gave out like, you know, a thousand tickets. And that's the people that are here. You know, that kind of thing gets a little murky. Like if you're if you have a press conference, right, if you're running a company and you got a press conference for your fighters and all that, and suddenly I can go online and find that that press conference had a bunch of people um, that responded to a casting call to pretend to be photographers. And you pay these people like 50 bucks for an hour just to sit there and pretend they're taking pictures. So you'd be like, wow, look at all this international media that showed up because of this event. And you're like, wait, who, who, who the fuck are these people? <laughs> and you ask around, you know, you pick up the phone, you DM somebody, be like, yo, man, did you guys send anybody for that? Do you have anybody in the area? Do you know, do you know anyone who covered this? Uh, who's writing about it? Oh, okay. W what's wait? Huh? Like, there's a lot of head scratching shit going on. And then there's the uh, other aspect of the fact that one championship is owned 
by the same person, or rather the president of one championship, I should say, is also the owner of Evolve Gym, which is a uh, one of the larger mixed martial arts gyms uh, by notoriety and by name. They had a lot of big names. Most of those names were also fighting in one championship. So you have this symbiotic relationship between the two. And uh, a lot of questions asked about, wait, how how is this how is this happening? Are the guys that fight for Evolve getting favorable matchups? It seems to be the case. It's just, um, it's it's not a coincidence that three or four of your biggest names, your more marketable guys that you're putting a lot of promotion and weight behind are also guys that are getting a couple of uh, layups here and there. You know, if you're, if you're a fighter who's got 10 wins and three losses and you're taking on somebody who's got, you know, what, who's got no losses and like maybe, I'm sorry, three, uh, three losses, no wins. You got some fucking questions that need to be answered there. You know what I'm saying? If you got a guy who is making $3,000 a fight and I've seen these fucking contracts, like I, this is, this is, this is insane because even the UFC, um, pays at a base level 10 to $12,000 for guys coming in, having their first fight, if they're coming in fresh off the regionals. So if you have a guy who's making $3,000 and you're telling me that you are on par or uh, close to the degree of, of market share or notoriety of the UFC. What's going on here? What's missing? Why are you paying that guy scraps? Nobody's fighting in a major organization for three grand. Not even, not even Bellator. Like if you're on the main card, maybe a prelim guy if he's selling tickets. But you're doing that, and then on top of that, you're giving him a pay bump to fight a former champion, and that pay bump equates to five thousand dollars total. Are you sure? Like that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. That's the kind of thing that I've been covering. Um, and I've been talking to people, man. I've been it, the, the weirdest thing about it is sometimes it just takes one crack for everything to spill out and, and be out in the open. And ever since I wrote that, I've had a ton of people reach out to me and be like, dude, you're not going to believe this. And when you have four, five, six, seven different people tell you the same story, people that were not maybe working at the same place at the same time within the company or within both companies, right? Because you have people on the gym side and then people on the fight promotion side. And they're telling you things that are happening like, oh, okay, well, let me let me put a, let me, let me, let me dog ear this page and get back to that because there's some stuff here that we need to address. There's a lot that isn't being talked about. Now, the more notable thing has been the work that's been done by John Nash, who is uh, one of our writers and truly one of the, uh, the, the, the real good guys in this business, man. He's just, he's just such a great dude. And, um, he is our economics guy. He's their, our main number crunching dude. And he's been looking at the losses that they've experienced and how these guys are burning an average of about $70 million per year. And that's just from one championship. That's just from, again, the fight organization. As far as Evolve, as far as the gym, um, there was some interesting information. And, and he and I actually uh, worked on that a little bit together. Um, of course, he did the heavy lifting. I don't want to take too much credit for that, but we 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 got to uh, talking about some information that kind of fell into my lap in the course of addressing and, and investigating this stuff. The Evolve Gym brand is being valued at around three hundred million dollars. You got three hundred million dollars, man, for about four or five gyms at most. Make that math, math. How does that work? I'm, I mean, I'm just I'm just put out there, man. Look, I'm not a I'm not a math genius. I, I, it was never my strongest subject, but. I know that shit ain't right. I mean, UFC gyms do not have that valuation to my understanding, and they've got them literally all over the world. So uh, I, I I don't know how that even happened, and that's the major question that Nash uh, tried to find, not necessarily an answer, but at least put out there, like, why is this happening? Where are these massive influxes of cash coming from in the hundreds of millions of dollars, and from whom? 
why is this company now established in the Cayman Islands? And and these again, these are matters of public record. So I mean, I can say this freely and not really feel like there's any concern. But um, why is it that it's Chachri's fiance who's got the name to uh, all these other things on the Cayman Islands account? That's a couple of questions that need to be addressed, my G. Like you, you know, again, I, I don't think there's anything criminal exactly happening, but there's a whole lot of what would be unnecessary covering up if this were a super legit organization. Actually, let me ask you this. Have you seen the origin story video that they had for him? No. Yeah, there's a great video, and I'm going to send it to you in a little bit about, you know, how, you know, from humble beginnings, this, uh, you know, this this young man who had nothing, and he ended up going to, um, he ended up working his way up and getting a good education. He went to Harvard, blah, blah, blah. It's a hiography of the strangest order, and there's some weird inconsistencies within, you know, where he talks about how when he was at Harvard, like, yeah, he was at Harvard, but he was living off $5 a day, and, you know, his, him and his buddies would basically, like, pull their money together, and that was, like, their lunch and dinner. They'd, they, they'd pull their, like, $5 each or whatever and go to this Thai spot that was down the street, and that's how they'd eat, and so it was, like, it was cool because he had a piece of home while he was doing this and being with his buddies and building relationships and getting an education, even though he would be starving otherwise. but. Let me ask you something. Thai spot so close to Harvard, like, yeah, sure, maybe uh, a lot of the um, diplomatic culinary uh, efforts, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, and for, okay, well, I, I should I should broaden this because, again, I, I kind of I'm forgetting. I was like, I'm so happy to talk to you that I'm forgetting there's a whole fucking audience that I got to break this down to. Right. So um, Thailand was one of the countries that invented. Well, they didn't invent, but they they maximized. Uh, as part of a tourism effort, the potential to get some people that were trained cooks and facilitate their visas to go other places, primarily the United States. And that's where you saw a whole bunch of Thai food places just sort of bloom overnight, right? And that's how Thai food became popular and it created a degree of interest. It, it was the entry point for a lot of people to say, hey, man, I should go to Thailand. And it, it was a rousing success and it's worked out beautifully. Other countries in, in Asia have also sort of taken to that as well. Korea, most notably. Um, Japan didn't really do that in the 80s. I mean, sushi just sort of, I don't even know how that, I don't remember quite the origin story was for that. But it's just one of those things that, that, that people do. So, you know, maybe this was one of those deals where somebody from Thailand was like, here's a good business opportunity. I'm going to bring this um, food that is somewhat new and unknown in the United States and have it near Harvard because there's international people here. But turns out there's actually a lot of Thai people going to universities in the New England area. And do you know who those people are, Sam? Who? They're people who's got fucking money. And so here's the thing. Apparently in the consensus, again, from people that I speak to, the consensus appears to be that if you grow up with money in Thailand, usually you're getting your secondary education in the States and you're going to one of those New England universities like Harvard. So now, so this whole $5 a day story starts to look a little weird, right? And another point that somebody raised was that if you look at the timeline of when he says that the, uh, the, the financial struggles in his family's life were, and it was all due to the crash of the, um, basically the, the entire, uh, Asian recession, right? Because there was, there were some points back in the nineties uh, and early aughts that were rough as hell, you know, in terms of, of financials. And it doesn't seem to quite line up with when he said it happened and when he was in Harvard and all this other stuff. So I'm I'm really curious as to how that went. But when you're someone who only does interviews with favorable outlets and, you know, the people that you give interview to interviews to at those outlets end up working for you later. Uh, 
kind of hard to get a straight answer out of somebody like that. And it, it's uh, it's kind of hard to find people that'll challenge that uh, those particular answers. So I, I, yeah, I got a lot of questions. I got a lot of questions about this whole deal. He seems to me like, and I've always been fascinated with con men and frauds and things like that. And this, this guy really, uh, I, I, I'm not accusing him of anything, but I am truly fascinated because of these disparities. And it really doesn't, none of this stuff adds up. It really does not. I, I don't. I'm not saying he's pocketing all this money or anything like that. I don't think he's ripping anybody off. Um, I just, I just kind of resent when people bring up the criminal element possibility thing because number one, from what I'm seeing, it doesn't seem to be the case, as I keep saying. But number two, you know, when you watch a documentary on Theranos or WeWork here in the United States, you go, oh wow, that's weird. It's funny how that happened. Rich people just throwing good money after bad to do this thing, and you can't apply that to Asia. Like your first thought is like, oh, that's the triads. That's the Yakuza. Like, no, dude, it doesn't have to be that. You know, there are other possibilities. And I don't know if there's just like a very America-centric focus or lens on that, but um, I'd say it's probably way closer to that than anything regarding any sort of like mob involvement. I I find that frankly to be fucking absurd. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content as well as our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, it'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it 7 days a week, and you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity, by supporting us, at patreon.com, slash, southpawpod. Now let's talk about UFC 266. Hopefully none of these fights will get canceled before. Oh, they will. <laughs> <laughs> they fucking will. But in either case, let's talk about it. First is the featherweight main event title fight between champion Alexander Volkanovsky versus challenger Brian Ortega. This will be Volkanovsky's first fight after getting COVID, which is something to consider. What do you think about this matchup? It's odd but i mean it's deserved i suppose volkanovsky i mean how many times is he gonna fight holloway at this point you know i I think it's it's fine look ortega's earned it he's he's got slick boxing that perhaps we um didn't respect as much and by we i just mean like me and the people that have been sort of naysayers i've been doubting ortega for quite some time and he somehow he just keeps pulling off these weird thrilling wins that (laughs) he's just like i don't know how he does it but he just does it and it's just uh it's it's been fun to watch him blossom and become this dude who uh could certainly be a threat even though his takedowns are not um you know he he doesn't have like the kind of wrestling that that would uh seem super threatening but he's confident enough in his abilities off his back that when he gets taken down he's not really sweating any of it in fact he'll invite that because he knows that he can uh he throw up submissions or do damage with strikes off his back and that uh, that keeps people thinking. It keeps guys guessing. Uh, Volkanovski, though, has this weird level of what uh, one of the former Bloody Elbow commenters described Lacey Tebow as, right? Technically, he could be classified as farm, as farm equipment, right? Because he's just got that super crazy strength and that low center of gravity. He's, he's kind of, he moves heavy in some cases, but he glides when he's about to strike. It's pretty impressive. Um, so I, I just feel like having the sort of fight IQ, not being afraid to double up on his counters, interrupting the flow and the rhythm that his opponents give, 
that's a big plus for Volkanovski. And seeing the way that he handled Holloway, who was a master at using range and who is more, um, much more of a complete striker than Ortega in the sense that he's got his boxing and his kicks. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I feel like I'm going to pick against Ortega and he's going to make me look like an <laughs> absolute asshole again, which I deserve, but I, I kind of feel like that's where it's going to go. And I'm, I'm sort of making peace with that fact at this level. But if you actually dissect it and look at his record, he got pretty handled by Max Holloway. And then his next fight was an impressive win against Korean Zombie. And it might be one of those situations where then he surprises us because he does so well. And that was just like a snapshot of where he's headed. And then against Volkanovski, who might even be carrying long-term effects of COVID, Ortega might show us something. Or it might show us that the Korean zombie isn't who he used to be anymore. Like if Ortega gets handled in this fight and then zombie gets destroyed in his next fight, then you have to really consider maybe that looked good for Ortega just because zombie was on the last leg of his career. I mean, I'd offer that maybe Zombie, maybe this is who he always was to a degree. Like Ortega just found the gaps in his, um, in, in Zombie's arsenal and was able to sort of maximize that potential. You know, the, he saw that he wasn't the same kind of boxer. Look, boxing is not just boxing, much like wrestling isn't just wrestling. How many jujitsu black belts do we see in MMA and, and how many of them truly shine and rise above guys like, you know, Damian Maya, for example. And does he grapple the same way that Nick Diaz does? No, but Nick Diaz also super impressive for as, as a black belt. Frank Mir, same thing. You know, you have guys that that transcend in their um, ability because they do things a little differently. Fabrice Overdoom having sort of a more modern style of jiu-jitsu, taking on Big Nog, who had a more of a classical, you know, bread and butter basic type, which, which, and I'm not knocking that in any way. I'm not saying like, well, you know, new school is going to be old school. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's how you apply it sometimes. It's how you look at it. If you take a step back and have a different form of perspective, how you're being coached. I think that's what's led Ortega to that. It's not so much, in my view, yeah, he looked great. He shot, he was able to shine in that performance. But uh, it also means to me that, number one, he kind of, you know, everybody gets figured out. I think him and his team figured out Zombie. And number two, he made so many improvements in his game. And that it was, like, all of these factors put together put him that far above. So I, I do think that it had to do, uh, you know, let's add that element as well, aside from the fact that it was just one big performance, you know? Next, we have the women's flyweight title fight between champion Valentina Shevchenko versus challenger Lauren Murphy. Now, there's been a lot of criticism about this division that you can come and win a couple of fights and get the next title shot. But I got to give it to Lauren Murphy because she's been with the UFC since 2014 and steadily worked her way to her first title fight. So this is as well deserved as you're going to see. Yeah, I've been singing her praises for years, man. I mean, ever since she was invict in Invicta, I was like, you know, this 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 lady's really uh she's tough as shit for starters. She's really <laughs> she's really uh animated. She does a lot of things right. I mean, I just feel that at some point she'd take her foot off the gas. Um there were certain things that she was kind of missing, you know, but uh, I I look at the way that she's been fighting lately. I look at the fact that she has been uh, very coachable. She's improved by leaps and bounds. Problem is that she is not, I don't even put her age so much as a factor. I just think it's more a fact that Valentina has been striking and fighting since childhood. And that does a lot. 
you know, that does a lot in terms of technique. I just kind of feel like she's going to be able to swarm and really outclass Lauren Murphy. And Lauren has decent wrestling, but is she going to be able to take down Valentina where others haven't? I don't know. I, I don't know that I can truly say that. Lauren is absolutely going to be outgunned on this one, and she's going to have not just to have the performance of a lifetime to win this, but also she's going to have to. Um, she's Valentina is going to have to make a few mistakes, mm. and and that's kind of where you know. I, I mean, I feel bad saying it because I, I really I really like what I like Lauren as a fighter. I I respect what she's accomplished so far. I think she's looked great in some of these performances as of late, primarily, but. Um, I don't know, man. It's it's looking dicey, you know. I don't I don't really I don't really know where that uh, I don't really know where else you'd go with this, but I I just kind of I I know this isn't I don't feel like this is going to be the kind of mauling like the Jessica I fight. I don't really think it's going to be that because Lauren's super tough to put away, but that'll also work to her detriment. What's going to happen? Is she going to rely on instinct when she starts getting rocked, or is she going to be able to keep her composure and start maximizing her potential? You know, just sticking to whatever game plan she's got. What happens when Plan A fails? Uh, you know, I always sing the praises of John Crouch. He's a great dude and he's a genius, but it does does he have with Lauren Murphy's tools? the right kind of game plan to get it done. I don't know. And that's not a knock against Lauren. It's more to say that Valentina is that far ahead of the rest of the division. She's that elite that this is what you end up in situations like that. It kind of reminds me of the classic fight between GSP versus John Fitch. I don't know if it'll look like that, but going into it, that's what it feels like. Somebody in GSP who's at the top of their game and somebody like John Fitch who earn their way to the title and it's just a grinder the thing is lauren isn't just a grinder i mean she she does have submission threats but valentina's got submission defense too and she's trained in some pretty elite level uh fighters too so um yeah it, it's really hard to to find any sort of spot that you could say well clearly she'll be able to have an advantage here no she's she's gonna she's gonna have some serious disadvantages but you know what man i it's it's kind of like Brian Ortega. I've doubted her enough in some of her performances where I shouldn't have, and yeah, that's um, that's that's just it's just wild. I just I have a really good feeling that that's going to be a really damn good fight, though. Speaking of old school fights like GSP versus John Fitch, next we have returning Nick Diaz versus Robbie Lawler. Diaz hasn't fought since 2015, and Lawler hasn't fought since 2020, losing five out of his last six fights. First of all. Did anyone demand this rematch? I, I, I guess the uh, only way that Nick was going to get out of his contract is if he fought it out and they offered him something interesting and now he's going with it. Mm. Other than that, I don't really know what else it would be. I, I don't know what um, I, I don't know what other impetus there was other than the UFC doing what WWE was doing in the early aughts and banking largely on nostalgia because, you know, but then, I mean, look, it's not entirely fair as a comparison because the UFC does have fresh and new and interesting things to offer. Uh, I just don't know that they have fresh and new and interesting things to offer Robbie Lawler. And this seemed like an intriguing concept, and they're older and more wizened, far more experienced. Nick hasn't fought in a while. I think the biggest factor is going to be here. Number one is is Robbie, uh, what, what kind of condition is he going to be in? And number two, does Nick really give a shit? You know, you have somebody that he doesn't hate. Right. But you saw what happened with the Anderson Silva fight. Like I didn't watch the whole fight. I only saw bits and pieces and I have no interest in watching the whole fight at all because I mean, really, why should I? Uh, but you know, he, he didn't, 
he didn't seem like he was too concerned with that. And I don't, similarly, I don't really know that he's too concerned with this. It's a slick payday for him and on big pay per view. All right, I guess, like, I want to pick Lawler, but at the same time, Nick's volume is big. And how's Robbie going to respond? I don't know, man. It's so uncomfortable because I'm giving the advantages to a guy who hasn't fought in oh so long. <laughs> it sounds so it feels so stupid but it's like yeah this is an incredibly inherently stupid sport of course like yeah it's probably what's gonna happen so yeah why not i was wondering is there any rumors that he wants to finish out his contract and go on to maybe thriller or celebrity boxing or something no that's that's purely speculatory on my part i mean he's talked about doing uh boxing for years now and i figured the only way that the usc is going to let him do it is if he's no longer under contract. So maybe that's the end game here. Maybe that's why him and Nate are taking all these fights. It, it's, it's again, I, I'm just sort of spitballing here. It seems likely, but you never know with some of these cats. You know, it might just be that he feels like it's time and he feels like doing it. It does make sense because all the times they talked about wanting to box, this type of celebrity boxing wasn't around yet. Right, exactly. Next, we have a heavyweight bout between Curtis Blades versus Jairzinho Rosenstrike. What do you think a win does for either fighter? Does it put them in line for a title shot or maybe it's more of a, another heavyweight fight to make because both of these people need to fight somebody? I, I think it's a little bit of both, but mostly the latter because, you know, I, I don't think that a win here gives either guy a title shot exactly. I mean, they'd have to do something spectacular. You know what I mean? They'd have to do something utterly sensational to win but you look at the triumvirate at the top what are you looking at you're looking at you're looking at Nganu, you're looking at Derek lewis and then you're looking at john jones and wait a minute there's stipe too in the mix so it's actually four dudes you got to worry about so you got the political thing going on with these dudes here i'm not really uh i mean look let's just say that stipe is totally out of the picture right after his last loss let's just say that he's not going to get the next title shot you still got three dudes that are very bankable Three guys that are very marketable and that, that have been making some pretty decent money for the UFC and that they like seeing in big main event fights. So who do you put in there against that? Now, Rosenstreich, like, is he really going to be someone that, that uh, they're going to get behind? I'm not entirely certain. And if you look at um, you look at his past and his record, I mean, he did lose pretty horribly to Francis Ngannou before. The UFC is pretty lazy when it comes to marketing. I don't know if they're really going to want to put their weight behind that and try to market a rematch. And then on top of that, you got, or rather aside from that, you got Curtis Blades, who not always putting on the most exciting performances, but he's a very smart fighter. He's very technical with his wrestling, and he loves to strike on the ground. Um, just the way that he tore through that that nice little run that he had with you know Justin Willis, Shamil, Shamil Abdurahimov, Dos Santos, and Volkov, you know, sure, look. Dos Santos wasn't what he was in the past. Uh, Abdurakimov, impressive grappler and a bit of a submission threat. So that was kind of interesting. And then Volkov, which is like, okay, this is a good litmus test to see where you're at. Then he loses to Derek Lewis. Well, let's say Derek Lewis beats Ngannou. What happens next? You know what I mean? So I no, I, I do not think, given all of these complicated factors, that there is going to be a title fight for the winner at the end of the rainbow here. But uh, I, I do think that it at least puts him into some consideration and give the winner. Um, make them something of a bargaining chip for the UFC to hold against whoever they don't want to pay too much in the eventual case of another uh, title fight down the line that does not include John Jones. Do you think Rosenstrike can defend against Curtis Blades' takedowns, or do you think Rosenstrike might pull from Derek Lewis's game plan and look to try to knock him out when he's shooting? 
No, I, I think the problem is that, you know, Rosenstruck is, is a good striker, but he's not Nganu and he's not Derek Lewis. You know, these guys all fight in, in different ways and they hunt for strikes in different ways. And I'm sure he's seen like, well, this guy's a wrestler. I could probably snag an uppercut like, you know, the way that, that, that Derek Lewis did. But, um, you know, I don't I haven't seen Rosenstruck fight and defeat a wrestler quite like this. And so I wonder how he's going to deal with the physicality. How is he going to deal with this dude closing the distance like that? It, it's a threat. This is like, you know, like when a, when you see like an alligator attack an animal for consumption. It's like, it, it's pretty nasty. It's pretty good. And he's good with those single legs. And he's great with those double legs. And he's good at pressing you against the cage and wearing you out. Jarzino does not have the best cardio. I'm sorry. It's not a thing. I just don't really know. He's going to be outgunned on this one, too, dude. Like, I'm serious. Like, you let him get inside and neutralize your mid-range game, you're going to have a lot of trouble fending off a dude like uh, like, like Curtis Blades. So I, I just don't know. Um, I, I think that Blades perhaps may not be, even though he's not like the sexy marquee name for a lot of people, uh, I, I think a lot of folks aren't really truly giving him the credit he deserves, especially in a match like this. So I, I really think that he shouldn't take this. It's kind of frustrating to watch Curtis Blaze in that you watch him and then you look at his record and you look at what he can do on paper. And from what you've seen him do and even on paper, he has the ability to beat Nganu, Derek Lewis, right? Even like a Cyril Gon or any of these guys. He has that ability. But then when he gets into those tests or when he gets like right there, close to a title fight something just happens he just like flips on a banana peel you know what i mean yeah 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 and it's like you watch it and you're like you could have done it what happened yeah you might have pulled it off no but you're right i mean that's that's the thing like you look at the fact that curtis blades his professional record's 14 and 3 right and who has he lost to francis and ghana twice and Derek lewis the two hardest hitters are the only people that have put him away so there's no real shame in that. Like, if you really look at the fact that the way that he's been winning his fights and the fact that he's been losing to these two guys, like, you're really going to knock him for that? Two of the hardest hitters that have ever stepped into the cage in any organization? Really, really going to fucking do this? That's not fair, man. It's not right. And and that's that bothers me. But, you know, look, man, fans are going to do what they're going to do. And people um, people like to uh, go with, with the least informed takes on things, I guess. I don't know. People are just lazy. Finally, we have the last fight on the main card a flyweight bout between former strawweight champion and former flyweight title challenger Jessica Andrade versus Cynthia Calvillo, who's another former strawweight. So as far as height and reach, I think they'll be pretty similar. I really like this. Um, I, I clearly, look, I mean, just to get everything out of the way straight up, I, I think that Jessica has a lot of major advantages here, not just with her wrestling, not just with her um, strength and and her speed, but her accuracy with her strikes. Although Calvillo has that too, though. Her her striking is, is sneaky, man. It's devious. The problem is that she takes her foot off the gas. Her transitions from striking to grappling are not as smooth. Although unless she senses an opportunity to hop on your neck or scramble on your back and then start working submissions from there. Um, that does not mean that I can give her as much of an, uh, that I have the kind of confidence really that she'd be able to do that sort of thing here. And that's where, look, Andrade has a championship experience. She's been in there against elite talent. Calvillo, every time Calvillo's had a fight against the more higher level fighters, she seems to falter. And I don't know if it's exactly a skill thing, if it's an instinctual thing, um, 
she's looked good in a lot of her wins, but you know, it's, it's, it's when you end up getting stalled or when you end up getting bullied and pressed and you have someone who can be, in fact, the biggest bully in this division who can press you. Now you got yourself a problem. You got, <laughs> you're going to be in there against someone who is able to outwork you in the clinch and pick you up over her head and just, you know, just, just, just spike you into the ground, which is how she got her nickname. You know, it's, it's not, um, it's not it's not rocket surgery, man. Like, it's, it's it's weird. The gaps are evident and apparent. They're a little hard to describe, but they're there. And and I think we can all see them. So I'm going to go with Jessica. It seems like it'll be the first fight where Cynthia Calvillo will lose, if she loses at all, but lose in a way where the other person beats her at her own game. Because a lot of times when Cynthia Calvillo loses, it's like somebody picking her apart from the outside and Cynthia Calvillo can't get on the inside and clinch up and get a takedown or maybe just like get close enough to even land her shots. Yeah. Like, like the Chukagan fight. Yeah. Whereas Jessica Andrade will also come to you. So they will have a collision. So then they will fight in the same space that they like to fight in and they will also clinch up. But is Cynthia Calvillo better than her at these spaces? And that'll be what's interesting is for Jessica Andrade to win. She will have to beat Cynthia Calvillo at the things that Cynthia Calvillo is good at. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. And and the fact that, you know, a lot of folks have this knock on Andrade, like somehow she's not, um, like all she's about is grabbing people and throwing them around. Like, no, it's been her most famous uh, performance, but she is she is a smarter and more measured fighter than a lot of people want to give her credit for. That's all the fights we're going to cover. I appreciate you coming on the show and taking your time to speak to us about a variety of MMA topics and even a little bit of background and history on you. So thank you for coming on the show. Where can people find you? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm annoying as fuck on Twitter. Cause I'm there like all day, every day at Vic M Rodriguez. Um, I, I'm not just talking about fighting. That's kind of like, I think a lot of people start following me and then they realize, Oh wait, he does that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm there pretty much all the time and uh, do not look me up on Facebook. I don't really take invites there unless it's you, Sam, you're good people, but Instagram, uh, I post a lot of pictures of food more than anything else. And uh, that's going to be Victor Sinister Rodriguez. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, I, I've been doing some, a bit of Twitch streaming lately. Um, the, uh, my, my, Username for that is uh, Soda Pop Catalyst, and I don't do it very often. I do a little bit. I've been doing a little bit of shirtless streaming lately, you know, for the thirst traps. It's just a bit of fun here, just toying around with the PS5. And uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm riding at bloody elbow all the time. Uh, and and if not, I'm you know at least I'm, I'm stuck to this soulless and horrible sport that gives us the occasional pangs of happiness. So uh, yeah, you you can find me there. All right, cool. Catch us on the next episode of Fight Study. And remember to check out all the other shows on the Southpaw Network. Thanks for listening. Southpaw. Hitting with the left. Southpaw. Sam. Paul. Southpaw. Southpaw.